You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts 15, 36 through 16, 10. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who was withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with, not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word to us, that you have spoken uh, from the heavens to us, that you have spoken clearly to us in the Lord Jesus. So now, O Spirit, we pray that you would lift our eyes to him, that we might Behold him and fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. So good to be here each Sunday with you. We have a lot to do tonight, uh, both in our text and with coming to the table together or the whatever these things are. Maybe not a table. Trays? Slots? I don't know what you call these things. But then also commissioning our very own Miss P to North Africa at the end of this service. So we are just going to jump right in. No, no hanging out on the front porch tonight. We got to get in the house. So everybody in. Uh, fresh on the heels of the extraordinary unity of the church that we saw last week uh, that Luke highlighted in that first big chunk of Acts 15. Uh, well, this chapter is not over. Similarly to the way that Acts 5 comes after the awesome, 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 awesome that is in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, where we uh, saw Ananias and Sapphira show that there is still sin, that there is still separation and division within the church. What follows in the extraordinary unity of the church in Acts 15 
Now here is division again. Division that is then followed by uncertainty. Three little vignettes that you just heard Cedric read in Acts 15 and 16 that Luke perhaps clumps together and gives us for a reason. That despite uncertainty, that despite conflict amongst his people, God will continue his mission through them. So we're going to divide these three vignettes under three headings tonight. That the gospel will advance uh, first, despite division. Second, through circumcision. And third, with vision. Hat tip to Cedric for all those isions uh, there on that outline. Uh, And if that second title, that God will advance his gospel through circumcision, seems to contradict everything that we observed and learned and applied last week, well, hang in there. All right. So, first of all, that God will advance his gospel despite division. Let's remember where we are here. We have seen that Paul and Barnabas had gone into Turkey preaching and planting churches making disciples throughout chapters 13 and 14 in Paul's so-called first missionary journey, starting in Antioch and then to Pisidian Antioch and then to towns like Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and back through those cities and then finally back to Antioch. Then Paul and Barnabas came down, as we saw last week, to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 to tell about what God had been doing in and through Gentiles, through non-Jews, throughout the Mediterranean region. And now, after all that's over, Paul and Barnabas are now just like sitting at the Jerusalem Starbucks thinking about what to do. What do we do now? I suppose they could have suggested what I would have suggested, and that is to go on a vacation, to go to the beach for a little while. And they may have done that. Uh, Luke doesn't give us a play-by-play of every minute of every day, but in verse 36, just says, after some days. So maybe they did go to the beach and put their feet up for a few days. But now here they are sitting at Starbucks, and Paul says, it's time to go again. We got to go again. Let us return, he says, and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul and Barnabas were not content to just plant new churches and then hope for the best. They felt it their fatherly duty to make sure that these young Christians were maturing and developing, and mind you, in cities that had tried to stone them. The problem is that Barnabas now wants to take his cousin along with him, his cousin John Mark. We met John Mark back in chapter 13, and all Luke told us there was that when they were first getting to these southern coastal cities in Turkey, in verse 13 of chapter 13, that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all we know. That's all that Luke tells us. And we still don't have much more context here in chapter 15. We don't know why John Mark had come home to Jerusalem. But apparently, Paul was more than just a little bugged by that. Traveling on a trip like theirs would have been enormously expensive and likely paid for out of the pockets of the Christians in Antioch. Paul does not want to get burned again with time and investment in John Mark just for him to just hit the eject button again when things get difficult. As George W. Bush wisely once said, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me. Well, you can't get fooled again. Uh, Barnabas, on the other hand, maybe with long conversations with his cousin John Mark here in Jerusalem, he has heard of his heart, he has heard of his conviction, he has heard perhaps of the sorrow that he 
felt for leaving Paul and Barnabas the first time. Barnabas now wants to give him a second chance. Maybe he's grown. Maybe he's matured. And maybe this is actually one reason not to give a ton of responsibility to young men. Who knows? Barnabas has now seen him grown and knows of his heart. And so he wants to take him along, wants to continue to invest in him. And so now Paul and Barnabas are at an impasse. Verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement. This word for sharp disagreement is where we get our English word paroxysm, which can be used in a medical context for like a sudden attack, a sudden convulsion. So one commentator assumes that this sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas are having was one of severely heightened emotions, red and distorted faces, loud voices, things said that were better left unsaid. Now, of course, that's conjecture on our part, but Luke is giving us a very sharp word here to describe the disagreement that they're having. It's perhaps more than just agreeing to disagree. And interestingly here, Luke does not tell us who he thinks is right. It's not like either one of them necessarily have a sinful position, a wrong conviction. But it certainly appears that their response with one another was indeed sinful. Anger and not gentleness. And it seems like they leave in anger and without reconciliation. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas does indeed take John Mark with him and they head to Barnabas's home island of Cyprus. And then Paul takes Silas back on the route that he and Barnabas had previously traveled. But this right here is the last that we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts. It sure looks like this disagreement had severed their relationship. So the question for us now is just so what? On the one hand, we can be thankful that God can and does use sin and division for good. Now there are two missionary journeys happening instead of just the one. But the question for us, like so many other places in the book of Acts, is, is this division now descriptive or prescriptive? That is, is Luke just describing what happens or what happened? Is he just recounting the history or is he perhaps prescribing what should happen? Application for our lives. I've heard this passage preached and taught that sometimes people just get to a place where they agree to disagree and they just need to separate. But If the church is the bride of Christ, then what Jesus says in Mark 10 about marriage ought to be true for Christians as well. That what God has joined together, let not man separate. Because Paul and Barnabas were not just agreeing to disagree. They were sharply disagreeing and they were dividing from one another in utter disunity. They were not enjoying or pursuing what Paul would later describe in Philippians 2 as being of the same mind, of having the same love, of being in full accord and of one mind, that is having the mind of Christ amongst them. Now we can be thankful that our brother Luke has not just whitewashed the history. He could have made it sound like they just divided for mission purposes, to have two separate missionary journeys going on. But he is intent on showing us that Paul and Barnabas are not the heroes of Acts. In fact, Jesus is. In fact, no human is the hero of any of God's redemptive stories. Many 
people can be models for us. But Jesus is, in fact, the greatest model who lived and died and rose again to reconcile unreconciled people to God and to one another. And so maybe the only real application for us in this story actually does not come from the book of Acts, but what we know from outside of the book of Acts, that Paul would later mention both Barnabas and Mark, John Mark, again in later letters. He says in 2 Timothy 4, he is asking for Mark to come. He calls Mark uh, very useful to me in my ministry. He wants him as a co-laborer in the gospel to come and help him. While there was separation, there was ultimately reconciliation. We don't know who made the first move, who apologized or who asked for forgiveness, but someone did. So perhaps a question for us might be, who do you feel some level of separation, some level of disagreement, division, or estrangement from? especially in this church. Make the first move. Even if it was a sharp disagreement, and it is actually not entirely clear who was in the wrong. As Jesus has initiated and moved towards us, now we can initiate and move towards others, being filled by him to say, I'm sorry. I was considering myself to be more important than you. Can we reconcile? Can we once again be useful for one another's ministries? Now, we've got to keep moving, but let's stew on that today. For the rest of the week, who can you be reconciled to this week? Perhaps not be best friends, but be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind of beginning to heal division. So the gospel will keep advancing despite division. And now secondly, the gospel would, will advance through circumcision. In chapter 16 now, last week we saw Paul, Peter, James, and the rest of the Jerusalem church decide. They decided that when Gentiles, that is non-Jews, when Gentiles become Christians, they actually do not need to become Jewish. The men did not need to get circumcised and All of these Gentiles did now not need to adopt Jewish law and custom. We see a a real-life narrative outplaying of that in Galatians 2, when Paul says that when he and Barnabas actually went to Jerusalem Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, they also took with them—this is something that Luke doesn't tell us—they actually took with them their Greek friend Titus. And Paul says in Galatians 2 that while some folks were then demanding that Titus be circumcised, he says, to them, those demanding that Titus be circumcised, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There was no way that Paul would allow Titus to be circumcised because the truth of the gospel was at stake. The question for Paul was, had Jesus allowed and provided a way into covenant with God or not? Had he provided freedom and forgiveness of sins and acceptance through his, that is Jesus's perfect law keeping? If that is the case, then we cannot go back to the law. Titus cannot be circumcised. Well, now here in chapter 16, where Paul and his new traveling partner Silas are going back through Turkey, 
they meet a disciple of Jesus in Lystra named Timothy. And beginning in verse 1, we read that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now what in the world? I thought that the truth of the gospel was at stake. Why would he not circumcised, demand that Titus not be circumcised, but then now circumcised Timothy. Well, here's the difference. In Galatians 2, looking back at the events of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Titus, a full-blooded Greek with no connection to the ethnic people of Israel, had come to faith in Israel's Messiah. If Paul and the church had first forced circumcision on him, then circumcision, and the rest of the old covenant law really was now a salvation issue. And so when circumcision or law keeping is an issue of salvation, it must be rejected. But in Acts 16, we have actually an entirely different situation. Timothy, who is ethnically Jewish on his mother's side and can therefore be allowed within the synagogues, He had a Greek father and therefore, as a child, was never circumcised. And on top of that, all of the Jews in these cities, verse 3 says, knew that his father was a Greek. So while he could have gone in to the synagogues with Paul to preach the gospel of Jesus, his physical body prevented him. So when circumcision had become an issue, not of salvation here, but of access, of gaining an audience for the gospel, it actually could here be considered. Luke doesn't tell us what these conversations, perhaps between Paul and Timothy, were like on these roads in Turkey. But perhaps Timothy did this willingly and in faith for future conversion. He actually was considering the needs of others to be more significant than his own. And without anesthesia, he would have to do the hard things but he was willing to for the sake of the gospel. And my guess is his story probably circulated in and around these synagogues. Timothy's love for Christ and his love for the gospel had likely become perhaps his most well-known, thought-of identity marker in this region for those who knew him. Not circumcision, that being his well-known, thought-of identity marker, but of his love for others, his willingness to become all things to all men. And so in a modern missions context, this this might be like if our many workers in North Africa who generally do not eat pork while they are in country and never eat pork around other Muslims, to do so would be culturally offensive, would slam doors shut on future conversations. It's, It's no big deal for them to abstain. Their desires and cravings for bacon are no big deal for the sake of the gospel. Certainly less important. But if these same workers came home for the summer, they were with us for the summer, and we were to tell them that we have become convinced that pork is inappropriate for Christians, and to remain part of us, to remain in good fellowship with us and with Christ, they must now also give up pork in order to follow Christ they would rightly go home, fire up the skillet, fry some bacon, 
and find a new church because we would have rejected the very gospel of Christ. But, so perhaps that's a helpful way to think through what Timothy is doing here in a missions context, but since many of us, or most of us, will actually not sell all that we have and live overseas in these kinds of contexts, then this arises the question for us. What what are we most known for? Jesus and your love for him? Some other cultural identity marker? What in your life actually prevents you from gaining access, from gaining an audience for the sake of the gospel? When someone thinks of you, what do they think about? Think about it. When someone thinks of you, what is it that they think about? Your favorite sports team? Your university alma mater? Do they think of your hobbies that you talk about all the time? Biking, skiing, hiking, hunting, camping? Do they think of your views on the Second Amendment, on small government, on local business? Do they think of your views on masks or vaccines? Might they think of your views on sexuality or on marriage or abortion, your views on justice or race or policing or immigration? Now, do not hear me wrong on this. It is not bad for you to love your favorite sports team or your university, for you to love camping. It is not wrong for you to have political views. It is perhaps even right to passionately argue and to advocate for just societies and to better care for the marginalized and for the vulnerable. But does the world receive those arguments, those passions from you, as mere social issues, as mere passions divorced from the Jesus who has sent you? As one pastor says, some Christians have spoken so loudly about so many secondary and tertiary issues that when they finally do speak of Jesus, there is no one left listening. Relatedly, does the end always justify the means? Does the righteousness of our cause justify us being brash and combative and unwilling to listen Does our temperament and tone and language actually poison our ability to win an audience, to proclaim the sweetness of Christ? I kind of feel like many folks today perhaps would have celebrated Timothy had he refused to be circumcised and then just forced himself into the synagogues anyway. Yeah, Timothy, you tell him. That Timothy, he just tells it like it is. He doesn't bow down to political correctness And yet, if you respond to a Starbucks barista with a corrective Merry Christmas when she offers a Happy Holidays, is Christ actually honored? Is his aroma sweet? Or rather, is a smiling thank you and Happy Holidays to you and to your family as well actually a better way to gain trust, to open doors for future gospel conversations with that very same barista. As one author writes, Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me, not all men will hate you because of you. A small but significant difference. It's one thing if we're rejected because we're Christians. It's another if we're rejected because we're just jerks. And so this week, several of us were talking about this text over lunch, and Aaron Bickett was 
describing his love for the United States. But, Aaron then said, if the American flag sticker on the back of his car ever closed down or shut off opportunities to speak of the welcoming love of Christ, that sticker would get peeled off the back of his car in like two seconds. Who cares about a sticker? Or who cares about some lesser loyalties when opportunities for the gospel are at stake? This kind of wisdom is not caving to cultural or social or political pressure, but it is just loving your neighbor more than yourself. Loving Christ above all other national or cultural or tribal markers that we might just use to publicize to the world what kind of person we are or what kind of values that we happen to celebrate, rather than publicizing Christ. And so with similar wisdom and self-denial, Paul and Timothy gain audience with the Jews. They were actually here to deliver, verse 4 tells us, they were here to deliver the decisions of the Jerusalem council, which includes nothing about circumcision. They're not to keep getting circumcised, and yet Timothy does. Timothy here does not flaunt his freedom in the face of these Jews, even of Jewish Christians. They, Timothy, is considering others to be more significant than himself. Because Jesus has poured himself out for the good and the benefit of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they are more than willing to do the same for others. And through all of this, verse 5, Luke tells us, the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. God is building his church. He is filling the earth with his glory despite division. And he is doing so even through circumcision. That is, he is doing so through Christians who are being humble, who are considering others to be more important than themselves, to become all things to all people, not just as a spiritual platitude, but with actual evidence, with actual life decisions of considering others to be more important. And so now, lastly, the gospel will will advance despite division and through circumcision, but now with vision. Okay, so the Turkish peninsula extends uh, out to the west, and it is wrapped around to the south uh, by the Mediterranean Sea, and then over here on the west by the Aegean Sea, which separates it from the Greek peninsula. And then it narrows up here where the city of modern-day Istanbul or Constantinople or in Paul's day Byzantium is. And then through that is the Black Sea on the north of this Turkish peninsula. The Black Sea surrounds the northern border, dividing Turkey from Russia, from Ukraine, from Romania and Bulgaria. So if Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to continue on preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, the doorway to the world is right here. There is Africa. There is Europe. There is Asia surrounding them, wherever they look. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know what happens. Paul goes to the west. He goes on to Greece. But he could have just as easily gone east or north Paul's second missionary journey, like the map in the back of your Bible, might have been a line up to Madarasha. Who knows? And we know this could have happened because here they are in Acts 16, 
just wandering around, not knowing where to go. Verse 6 tells us that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to preach in Asia. And Asia here means a very specific and small region in western Turkey that includes all the names of those cities in Revelation, like Philadelphia and Laodicea and Ephesus. This isn't like our modern-day continent of Asia. It makes sense that Paul would have wanted to go to western Turkey, into Asia. Ephesus was a massive and important city. He wanted to go there. Now, we don't know what it means that the Holy Spirit though, was forbidding him to go to Asia. Whether there was just logistical obstacles that Paul was rightly understanding as the providence of God, or maybe they were having dreams or strong impressions, I don't know. Either way, though, then, now being prevented from going to the west, they try to go up to the north, into Bithynia, which is the northern coast. They are maybe going to wrap their way along the southern Black Sea and get all the way up to Moscow. Who knows? But nope, the Spirit of Jesus does not allow them to do that either. Now, we shouldn't make too much of Luke's distinction between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. The triune God here is guiding and leading them. And all of this kind of feels like, might remind us of David leading his men in First and Second Samuel, over and over and over again. David coming to the Lord and asking, should we attack the Philistines here? Sometimes God responds and says, no. Sometimes we read something like, and the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. This is a new conquest of the land, the announcement of the king and the vanquishing of his enemies of sin and death. All of this will continue, but God in his wise providence will have the conquest go where he wants it to go. And so now, over on the far western border of Turkey and Troas, now Paul and Silas and Timothy, they have nowhere else to go. Their, their heels are like at the Aegean Sea. They're on the beach with nowhere else to go. Where should we go? And then verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now again, so much of Acts is descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. Local churches and the Lord Jesus himself with his own voice has set Paul aside, sent him to preach the gospel to the non-Jewish world. So perhaps... Uh, if you were to have a similar dream from, with a man from India or from Brazil or something saying, come over and help us, it may not be as clearly from the Lord as this is for Paul, who the Lord Jesus has set aside personally. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Decision-making can sometimes be really hard. Now, God is just like here in Acts 16, always answering our prayers for guidance and and wisdom. That is, assuming that we are asking and praying for God's help and guidance, for wisdom. But he is always answering, just sometimes with a no, with clear, closed doors like he had here for Paul in Asia and Bithynia. But in the lives of us normal people, perhaps those who aren't apostles, set aside with specific tasks by churches or by the Lord Jesus himself. Decision-making 
while sometimes hard, can actually be fairly easy. God fills his people with his spirit. He enables them to grow in wisdom and discernment. He then allows them to live lives of joy and peace and patience, and then even courage. In fact, that is much of what the Christian life is about, growing in maturity in these ways. We don't need to wait for a dream where our neighbor or our coworker comes to us and says, would you please share the gospel with me? Our unbelieving neighbors and friends are in just as much need for help as this Macedonian man, even if they do not articulate it. To clearly explain the forgiveness and belonging to God that Jesus offers to people who are equally looking for clean consciences, looking for belonging, but just in all of the wrong places that can never deliver, we have the answer. We have the help that they are looking for. But we also then do not need to wait on the Spirit to give us a dream, to clearly articulate whether we should take this job, whether we should ask this person out on a date. God, if you want to just maybe look through Ephesians 4, uses even the the structure of the local church to build up individual Christians into maturity, into wisdom, that then can live wise lives that are not blown by every wind or wave to make decisions. If you want to think more about decision-making, I'll just keep maybe once a year recommending Kevin DeYoung's little book called Just Do Something. If you want to hear the longest title of a book ever, here's the title of Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, colon, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or How to Make Decisions Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, or Writings in the Sky. It's a great book. It'll take you like two and a half hours to read it, and I assure you, you will benefit. But the Spirit is making wise and mature people. Sometimes speaking clearly, most often not. And that's okay, because God has spoken clearly to us in His Word and in His Son to make us into people who act, react, think, love, and live like Jesus. Now, there is just so much more here. But this so-called Macedonian call from this man here in a dream to Paul is just a diving board, a launching pad into the real beginning of what now the map in the back of your Bible calls Paul's second missionary journey as they will head across the sea into Macedonia with their first major stop in Philippi, which I think is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts next week. I can't wait. But until then... Let's leave here as people of unity and of reconciliation. It does not happen on its own. It takes work and effort. Let's leave here as people considering others to be more significant than ourselves, and let's leave here as people filled with courage and sent by the Spirit. And now let's pray that God might move the needle just a little bit in those areas in our lives in the next seven days. Our Father, we are thankful that you have moved towards us, that you have sent your son Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you, for the joy set before you, went to the cross, for the glory of God the Father, for our good and our reconciliation, that you have sought us and that you have bought us. 
Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you have filled us and that you now send us. Make us wise, make us mature, make us into selfless people who would consider the needs of our fellow members, of our neighbors, of the world around us to be more significant than our own. Help us and make us into people that the world thinks of Jesus when they think of us, certainly as a church, but even as individuals. We pray that you would do this for your great renown, for your glory, for our own joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.